Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning we are looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A few weeks ago, I had the rather intimidating first-time experience of being deposed by lawyers in a court case as an eyewitness due to being present at the difficult birth of my grandson, Judah, who ended up having brain damage. The uh, hospital is being taken to court for mistakes that they made, and I was deposed as an eyewitness who was there with my daughter that day. I had never been through anything like that, and it was an incredibly anxiety-filled experience. And I have never, ever before felt quite so much pressure to be so careful with my words and to say what was only what was absolutely true. As I reflected on that, I thought, you know, I should feel that way every time I step into this pulpit. But it also gave me a much deeper appreciation for what lawyers and judges and juries go through every day as they do their job, where they try to take from multiple eyewitness accounts, try to piece together What happened in the past? This also gave me a much deeper appreciation for the job that the apostles were given by the Lord Jesus Christ because they were called to spend their lives being eyewitnesses of the most important event in the history of the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, It tells what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. It says that the disciples gathered in Jerusalem as he'd instructed them to. And while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to be sent, they decided to appoint someone to 
be an apostle in the place of Judas, who had betrayed Jesus before his crucifixion. And as Peter gives the qualifications for what an apostle, you know, what a man needed to be to be an apostle, he said that this has to have been someone who has been with us, who has been among us from the beginning. And he means from the time that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist all the way until Christ was resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven, that this had to be someone who was with him. That was the qualification. But having given that qualification, then he gives the exact job description of what apostle was to do. And this is how he phrased This is a direct quote from Peter. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's what all the apostles were to do, were to be witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord. Now, we're not talking about here somebody who has some kind of vision or a dream in the middle of the night. We're talking about men who gave eyewitness to historical events. They lived with Jesus. They saw him nailed to a cross. They saw him dead. They saw him buried. And they saw him after his resurrection. Not just a one-time event that could be questioned, but again and again and again. They put their hands, their fingers in his side, in the wounds of his side and in his hands. They ate meals with him. They sat under his teaching for 40 days. And they saw him ascend to the Father in heaven. They were eyewitnesses, and that became the rest of their life's calling, was to tell the world what they had seen and what they had heard from Jesus, especially after his resurrection. Many years ago, one of my teachers made a comment in passing that all of the sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts that were given by the apostles in the time of the early church, all of the sermons have as their focal point the resurrection of Christ. And I remember being intrigued by that because I can't say that all the sermons that I've heard or even all the sermons that I've preached, I can't really say that they have as the focal point the resurrection of Christ. And so actually I never took the time to really dig into that and study the book of Acts, but I did that this week. And I looked at basically there's about a dozen sermons that are recorded of the apostles in the entire book of Acts. There's about 12 In those 12 sermons, there are 20 references to Christ being risen from the dead. It was the focal point, I assure you, it was the focal point of every sermon of the apostles. It was that important. That's what they were called to do, to tell the world Jesus is risen. I've chosen just a short example. Actually, I chose the speech that Peter gives in Acts chapter 4 because it's only 12 verses. Most of these sermons are longer than that. But I wanted to give it to you as just an example to show you not only that that was the focus of Peter's preaching and all the apostles' preaching, but how they showed us what are the implications of it. If Jesus is risen from the dead, if their eyewitness accounts are true, then what are the implications for the world? What are the implications for you as an individual? We need to think about the message of the church today and all the pressures that the church is under. Have we gotten off message? The apostles' calling was unique in many ways, but still the focal point of the gospel 
is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means and the implications it has for our life. Let me give you the context of chapter 4 briefly. It's what happens at the beginning of chapter 3, just after the day of Pentecost, Peter and John, the two, two apostles, they go to the temple, and when they come to the temple, they meet a beggar. There are a lot of beggars that would hang out in the courts of the temple hoping for people to give them money. And as this beggar who was lame from birth, he had never walked from the time he was born, as he asks Peter for money, Peter says, I have no money to give you, but this I will give to you. And he says to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Immediately, the man's legs were strengthened. They were restored to normal state. Not only restored to normal state, but given the strength so that he could actually jump up, jump around, praising God for his healing. And of course, this attracted a crowd in the courts of the temple. And Peter seizes the moment to do what he was called to do, to give witness to the resurrected Christ. In chapter 3, he says to the crowd, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And so as we come to chapter 4, this crowd and the preaching of Peter had drawn the attention of the temple authorities. It lists there at the beginning of chapter 4 the priests of the temple, the captain of the temple. He was the, basically the second in command underneath the high priest, and he had charge of all the security force for the temple. And so he was, had the responsibility of keeping order, making sure that, that uh, nothing uh, inappropriate or that any riots or anything like that would happen near the temple courts. And then also mentions the Sadducees as kind of an all-encompassing label, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a political group among the Jews. They were primarily made up of the priests, but unfortunately they were also of the different groups of Jewish leaders, they were the ones that were least, the least biblical, the ones who were most heretical in their beliefs. They were actually very friendly to the Romans. They were very supportive of the Roman authorities that were oppressing the Jewish people. They were very wealthy, very worldly. They didn't believe in a coming Messiah. They didn't believe that our existence continues on after we die. And they didn't, therefore, believe in a bodily resurrection. So you can understand why in verse 2 it says they were greatly annoyed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. To them, this was heresy. You know, it's interesting that in the book, in the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's really the scribes and Pharisees who become the leaders of the movement, the enemies of Christ. It's the scribes and Pharisees that, that Jesus comes into conflict with over and over. But when you come to the book of Acts, when it comes to the apostles and the enemies that they face, it's the Sadducees that tend to come to the forefront. The Sadducees who attack the, the disciples. Why? Because they hated the teaching of the resurrection. And they despised the idea that Jesus was the Messiah and they especially despised that they taught that Jesus was the promised Messiah who was raised from the dead. Well, so these temple authorities, they arrest Peter and John. And the next day, Peter and John are summoned 
to come before the highest court of the land, the supreme court of the Jews, which was the Sanhedrin. And they are called to give an account for what they had done and what they had said. Beginning in verse 8, you have just in a few verses a condensed sermon of the version, a condensed version of the sermon that Peter gave in chapter 3 to the whole crowd. And so it's a good place for us to look to the content to get an example of how Peter preached the resurrection. Basically, in this sermon, he says, since Jesus is risen, he's an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. Since Jesus is risen, the first implication of that is that the Holy Spirit has come upon the church. In verse 8, it says, Luke point, that, here Luke points out that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit as he began to speak. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the New Testament way of speaking about the Holy Spirit coming upon God's people to strengthen them, to strengthen their faith, to give them gifts, and to give them the courage and boldness to speak out. The Holy Spirit came upon Peter and filled him. Of course, the Spirit was always active among the people of God in the Old Testament. But the promise in Jeremiah is that there, was a, there would be a greater outpouring of the Spirit after Messiah came. And that's what they experienced on the day of Pentecost. There's a greater power that came upon the early church. And that explains, when you think of Peter, how Peter changed. This is the same Peter who, when confronted as Jesus stood trial before the authorities, when Peter was confronted in the courtyard by a servant girl, he denied that he even knew Jesus. Denied Jesus three times as Jesus was being prepared to be crucified. But yet this same Peter preaches with power here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 after the day of Pentecost. This is what the Lord Jesus had promised to his disciples. He said to them in Luke chapter 12, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. He wasn't saying, you know, don't study the Bible. He wasn't saying don't prepare your comments. What he's saying is don't trust in the flesh. Don't trust in your own ability. Don't trust in your own mind. Trust in the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be alone. When you're called to give testimony to the resurrection, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Trust because you will be there with the Holy Spirit. When Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin to give an account, it was Peter, John, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gave them the words. The Holy Spirit gave them the courage. It says in verse 13, we didn't read to verse 13, but if you look at the very next verse after the last verse we read in verse 12, it says, they saw the boldness, the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men and were astonished. Peter was able to stand before those, remember who we're talking about here, this is the Sanhedrin, only weeks earlier, Jesus Christ himself had stood before the Sanhedrin and been condemned to death and handed over to the Romans to be crucified. And here's Peter standing before these same rulers and boldly declaring that Jesus had been risen from the dead. You know, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through these apostles explains how these common blue-collar 
low-class, dirty workers, fishermen, were able to turn the world upside down, according to the book of Acts. It is astounding how Jerusalem changed over the period of weeks because of the preaching of the apostles. Thousands upon thousands of people coming to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the risen Lord, because of the preaching of the apostles. And as you proceed through the book of Acts, you see as that preaching goes out from Jerusalem, out to, to, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the whole Roman Empire is turned upside down by the preaching of these apostles. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. We need that reminder this Easter. That when we speak of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, we are not alone. We are never alone. Jesus promised that as we give witness to him, the Holy Spirit is always with us and in us and empowering us, giving us courage, giving us the words. We need to trust him. We need to not look to worldly methods to supplement what we do, what, what we say, the kind of preaching we do, the kind of witnessing, evangelism we do, the outreach that we do. We need to trust that the Holy Spirit will give us the words from the word of God to share and that the word and the spirit together are enough to change the world around us. Jesus is risen and he has given us his spirit. Secondly, since Jesus is risen, we can trust the word of God. Verse 11, Peter quotes Psalm 118. He doesn't quote it word for word, but he's alluding to it when he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Just to take a moment to realize what he's saying there. This Jesus is the promised cornerstone. Back in Psalm 118, Psalm, the Psalms that were written hundreds upon hundreds of years before Christ was born, it was prophesied that when the cornerstone was placed in the world, by cornerstone it means the Messiah, that's another name for the Messiah, when God sent the Messiah into the world, the one, you know, when you think of a cornerstone in a building in that day, that was the stone that determined the size, the orientation, the location of the whole building. It was like the foundation of the, of the building. And so when God sent the Messiah to be the foundation of his people, the builders, in other words, the leaders of God's people, would reject him. That's what Peter's saying to the Sanhedrin. You rejected Christ. You put Christ to death. That's exactly what the prophets prophesied hundreds of years ago. That you would reject the Messiah and still he would become the foundation of God's people. You see, it's a crucial element of the, of the apostles' preaching as you study the book of Acts is they are constantly quoting Old Testament scripture. Constantly, especially quoting the Old Testament prophets. In Acts chapter 17, it describes the preaching and teaching of the apostle Paul. Listen to how it's described. It's talking about when Paul came to Thessalonica. He went to the synagogue of the Jews, and it says in verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. It was necessary for Jesus to be crucified and to rise from the dead because it was prophesied by God's word. God promised it, and God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. 
They were following the example of Christ himself. Remember, after Christ was raised from the dead, he came up upon two of his disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And it says in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament was written about Christ hundreds of years before he came. And the, uh, the apostles, as they were given this job to go be eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, they knew that that was one of the most powerful weapons in their arsenal as they went out to change the world was the prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Christ. We don't talk about those prophecies like the church used to. They are powerful testimonies to the authority of the word of God. The apostles quoted so many different parts of the Old Testament. As I went through it and I just wrote down some of the references, some of the prophecies that in Old Testament scriptures that were fulfilled by Christ that the apostles referred to in all their sermons. Here are some, and again, there's 12 recorded sermons. Listen to these chapters of the Old Testament that are quoted. Joel chapter 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Deuteronomy 18, Genesis 22, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 55, Amos 9, Habakkuk 1. Those are all the ones that I found. I know there's more. The apostles believed in the power and authority of the word of God. And they believed that Jesus was the one about whom the scriptures were written. There are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of them. These prophecies, like I said, let me underline, they were written, spoken hundreds of years before Christ was born. For instance, Isaiah 53. I mentioned at our Good Friday service that Isaiah 53 when you read it, it's almost like the Apostle Paul wrote it because it so clearly describes not only the details of the crucifixion of Christ, but also the meaning and purpose. And it was written 750 years before Christ was born. Christ fulfilled prophecy exactly. And this gives us confidence that this is a unique book. It is uniquely revealed by God from heaven. We can trust its words. The apostles trusted the word of God. The Bible has been repeatedly attacked as a primitive man-made document with errors. But it has always proven itself to be true and authoritative. We can trust in the scriptures. We must trust in the scriptures as the apostles did. Thirdly, since Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, another one of the features of the preaching of the apostles that you see in this chapter four as well is that therefore Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. One of the key phrase that the early church used over and over and over again is Jesus is Lord. Because he is risen from the dead, he is Lord. Do you notice that's what the concern was of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish leaders? Look at verse 7. They can't deny that they had healed this man who, has been, who had been lame since the time he was born. But what they're concerned about 
was the authority that these disciples, these apostles recognized. They say in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter and John, who do you represent? Who gives you the authority to come into the temple courts and preach? Who gives you the authority to do miracles? You see, a dead Messiah is no threat to earthly authorities. But a risen Messiah is a huge threat to earthly authorities. As Peter preached on, on the day of Pentecost, he quoted Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. A prophecy of the ascension of Christ after his resurrection. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is Lord, that's what he was saying. Here in chapter 4, Peter quotes, as I said before, Psalm 118, where it says that the Messiah is the cornerstone who would be rejected by the builders. Jesus is the one who has all power and authority. At that point, the Sanhedrin handed down a gag order upon Peter and John, said, speak no more to anyone in this name. And you probably remember how Peter responds. Peter and John say over in verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather to, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, but, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Unless, unless the Sanhedrin not get that message, they are very quickly after they are released, this time they are rearrested, and again they are told to stop preaching the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ, and in chapter 5, Peter says, bluntly, we must obey God rather than men. Why? Because Jesus is risen and Jesus is Lord. You know, that's why corrupt governments always end up persecuting the church. You would think... If Christians who take the Bible seriously, Christians who live by the Bible, are taught from the time they're children to submit to the governing authorities insofar as they're able without disobeying Christ. Christians are to live a submissive lifestyle, always putting the needs of others before themselves. Christians are called upon to be servants. Christians are to be salt and light, making the culture better. You would think that earthly authorities would work really hard to protect Christians. You would want Christian citizens in your country because those are the kind of citizens you want. People with servant hearts, people that are always working for the good of others. Isn't that what you want a citizen to be in any country? Why is it then that every nation in the history of the world has ended up becoming more and more corrupt, and as it becomes more and more corrupt, it ends up persecuting the church more and more harshly? Why? Because Christians say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is risen and Jesus is Lord. And corrupt governments, and power corrupts and 
absolute power corrupts absolutely. Corrupt governments cannot stand knowing that some of their citizens ultimately answer to a higher authority than themselves. Jesus is Lord. Finally, since Jesus is risen, the bottom line to apostolic preaching and the bottom line to our preaching is that all people are called upon to repent and believe in him. In verse 12, Peter makes a claim that cannot be ignored by anyone then nor today. He says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, what the resurrection did was it confirmed before the entire world that Jesus' death on the cross is the only means by which sinners like you and me can be forgiven and made clean in the sight of a holy God. If Jesus died on the cross but was not raised from the dead, then he was a charlatan. He was a false prophet. He was a Jewish rebellious leader who has no relevance today. But since God the Father raised him from the dead, that's God the Father saying, Jesus, you were the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I accept your sacrifice in the place of all of God's people of every age. The resurrection says that the wrath of God that your sins and my sins deserve has been poured out completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He drunk the cup of God's wrath completely and he licked it clean. There is no more wrath of God against the, the people of God for their sins because Christ bore all the pains of hell in our place. His sacrifice is sufficient. As he said on the cross, it is finished. You're forgiven, I'm forgiven by faith in what Christ has done for us. And we know that when we stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, we will be clothed in Christ's righteousness and our sins will be put far away as east is from west because God raised him from the dead. That's how we know. As Paul says in Romans chapter 4, God the Father raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And you know what? This is not just a message for the Jews. It's not just a message for the church. It's a message for every living, breathing human on the planet. Paul, in Acts chapter 17, went to Mars Hill where all the most noted pagan philosophers hung out in his day in Athens. These pagan Greek philosophers, Roman philosophers, he went to that crowd and he talked to them about God, his God, the God of the scriptures, Yahweh of the Old Testament, being the one true God who created all things and to whom all people are accountable. And this is how he ends that message. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all men, all women, all children everywhere 
must repent and believe in him because that is the only way to be saved. When Peter preached that message on the day of Pentecost, the people, it says, were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We preach the resurrection, and the bottom line of every message about the resurrection is, Jesus is risen, Jesus is Lord, repent and believe. A few weeks ago, I said in one of my sermons that the most important religious question that everyone has to answer is, who is Jesus Christ? But there's a necessary follow-up to that here on Easter. Not only who is Jesus Christ, but is Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Is that a fact? Is that a literal historical fact? Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We're not talking about a myth. We're not talking about a philosophical idea. We're not talking about a legend. We're talking about an historical fact. And if it's an historical fact, then every single person has to deal with whether they believe what the eyewitness of the apostles has told them and what we as witnesses of the church have told them. Is he raised from the dead? If he is raised from the dead, he is Lord. And he is the only means of salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which a person may be saved. You know, these apostles that we're talking about, they fulfilled their job description for the rest of their lives. They went around telling the world that Jesus is risen, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is Lord. And when the end of their life came, it came because of their testimony to the resurrection. They were called upon to deny Jesus, to deny the message they'd preached their whole life that he was risen. And they died for what they preached. They died saying, Jesus is risen and Jesus is Lord. They have given us that call. We are not apostles. We don't speak with the authority that the apostles had. They were, they were given revelation from God to give to man. We don't get revelation from God. We have everything we need to know in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the word of God. But we've received these eyewitness accounts of the apostles. And we have to decide, do we believe it or don't we? If we do believe it, it has these huge implications for our life. If Jesus is risen, then the Holy Spirit is with us all the time. He empowers us in our ministry, and the Word and the Spirit are sufficient. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is Lord of all. He is the ultimate authority, and all of our lives are lived in submission to His leadership and His authority. If Jesus is risen, then his word is absolutely trustworthy. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It is all-powerful to transform lives and cultures. And if Jesus is risen from the dead, then everyone must decide whether they're going to repent and believe or come under judgment. We use the word martyr to talk about people who actually are killed or executed or assassinated because of their faith in Jesus. But the word martyr just means witness. And from the time that you're born again until the time that you die or until Christ comes again, you are martyrs. Die to self, die to this world, live to Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me by his spirit. 
That's what the resurrection means to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that in a world that is filled with so much darkness and struggle and suffering and pain and anger and resentment and bitterness, Lord, there but for the grace of God go any of us. Lord, you revealed Christ to us. You sent your spirit to open our eyes, to open our ears, to change our hearts, to enable us to believe. But Lord, on this resurrection day, we especially celebrate the fact that Jesus is risen. And because he is risen, he is our Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for receiving our praise this morning as we offered up in the name, the only name by which men can be saved the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.